So for our message today, we are going to wrap up our exploration of 2 Corinthians. For those of you who've been here um, recently, you know we've been working through Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to wrap up 2 Corinthians today. If you have a Bible with you or near you, you can follow along if you'd like. Um, and I thought I'd just start with a little bit of a, a summary of what's going on in these letters to, to give us some context for, um, for anyone who might be jumping in here. So the Apostle Paul traveled throughout the ancient Middle East, starting churches, introducing people to this gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of those churches was in Corinth, and Paul spent a significant amount of time there. But after he left, there were some other people came in with a slightly different message about who Jesus is, what it means to be a Christian, started introducing some division. This church started embracing certain sins. And there was a lot of conflict going on, and there were accusations being made against Paul. Paul wrote two letters trying to address these things. He made uh, what we're aware, aware of at least two visits to this church, trying to confront them on what was going on in this church. And so in 2 Corinthians, he's kind of wrapping up that conflict. Um, we read in this letter where he was visited by uh, one of his fellow workers who came with a good report that the Corinthians had finally heard and um, heard what Paul was expressing. They repented from the things they were doing wrong and were eager to set things straight again. But they're still kind of in the midst of that. And these last three chapters of, of 2 Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians 11 through 13, um, when I think about all the letters that in the Bible, I think this is one of the most emotional expressions that I, that I can think of. And we're going to cover all three of those chapters together because I think there's an overarching theme that you see in them and an overarching um, um, point that I want to highlight today. Um, but in this last part, Paul is just pouring out his heart. He's pouring out some frustration with his church. And you'll see that in the things that I read. And it just really brings, brings us to the point that God's word is, is written by human beings who are going through all the ups and downs of life dealing with all kinds of conflicts is very relatable to all that we go to. So let me just read a few excerpts from these last few chapters in 2 Corinthians, and we'll talk about this for a little bit. So I'm going to start with 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. And this is right after Paul has brought up some of the uh, personal attacks that have been made against him by some of these people who've come into the church in Corinth. So Starting in verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you're already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches you a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think that I am in the least inferior to those, quote, super apostles. I may not be tra a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed the other churches by receiving support from them so that I could serve you. 
And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. And he goes on from there. So just to highlight a couple of things, he calls these um, people who have come and preached a different gospel super apostles. And you can hear the, the, the frustration that he has that, that the people here were willing to listen to all these other people who've come along with different messages and put up with it. And rather than distinguishing between what's true. And Paul expresses how he came to them trying not to be a burden to them all. He didn't take anything from them. And is asking, did I do something wrong in that? That you would so willingly listen to other people? Let me jump down to verse 14 in that same chapter. Actually, let me start in 13 for context. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And so he calls these other people who've come along, these other teachers who seem to be more trained in speaking, more eloquent perhaps, deceivers. False apostles masquerading um, as apostles of Christ. And then he makes some statements after this that he considers to be foolish, boasting about his own credentials. He asked the Corinthian church to put up with foolishness from him and that they so gladly put up with from other people. He says, you so gladly put up with fools and anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs and slaps you in the face. So he says, okay, so maybe if that's the kind of foolishness you want, I'll be a little bit foolish. And he goes on to, to point out all of his human credentials that would make him be somebody worth listening to. He ends all that with verse 21 in chapter 11, where he says, To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for all that. When anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool now. I also dare to boast about. He says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Because I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. Right? And so he goes on like this, pointing out the foolishness of looking at human credentials, pointing to himself as somebody worth listening to rather than seeking the truth. At the end of chapter 11, he says, if I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. Because he doesn't want the Corinthians, to be following somebody because they sound eloquent, because they seem influential, but rather because they are speaking what's true. He continues on into chapter 12 to speak about foolish things that he can boast of. Um, let's read chapter 12, verses 6 through 13. He says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But if I refrain, so no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I say or do. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, but... Uh, for I am not in the least inferior to these, quote, super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for a third time, and I will not be a burden to you because I, what I want is not your possessions, but you. So Paul begins to write about this plan to visit them for a third time. And his desire is not that they, again, that they would follow him, but they would see Christ and they would know him. They would be strengthened in him. When we get to chapter 13, Paul closes out this letter with a warning that when he returns, he will deal decisively with the sin that they embraced in the church, telling them that Jesus is at work powerfully among them if they are indeed in Christ. He prays that they would be found faithful to Jesus and he would not need to be harsh with them. And then he closes with these words. We're going to jump to the end now, verse, or chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. He says, finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so after all the things that he had to say to them, all the harsh statements, all the, the, the frustrated appeals that he makes, he does come back to expressing the love of God because that's where his heart is. That's where it's all derived from. He loves them with the love of Christ and he wants them to love Christ in the same way. Now as I consider all these things that Paul wrote, and what seems to be the passion with which he wrote them, I think I find myself thinking, what is it that drives this man? Why did he pursue these people with such passion? Why did he speak with such strong language toward them? Why did it matter to him so much that they cling to the gospel as he presented it to them, rather than allowing them to follow their own path? Maybe somebody else could come along after him, keep the church going at least, right? Keep that fellowship together. Maybe they believe something a little bit differently, and he could just go on from there. Why not just allow that to happen? Why did he care so much about the accusations that were made up against him? Why not just let it go and focus on some other people? For that matter, what drove Paul to keep sharing the gospel message through all the trials and persecutions that he suffered? Um, I didn't read the, the, the specific passage, but in part of this letter, when Paul was boasting about all the things that qualified him, he boasted about beatings and imprisonment and torture that he experienced more than anyone else, he said, speaking in that foolish way that he said he was speaking. He put up with a lot of physical and emotional pain to share the gospel everywhere he went. Why? 
why, why not just stop and just say, forget it. It's not worth it. I just want to live a peaceful life. Why would he do that to himself? Clearly, there were a number of people who did not like the message that Paul was preaching. They tried to stop him. So why keep going? There are lots of people who choose to just get along in life, to just do enough to give themselves a, a healthy, happy life and not ruffle any feathers and just have a peaceful life. Why not just do that? Why insist on putting himself into those situations that led to so much grief for himself and for other people? And in a word, the answer to those questions is Jesus. Paul had an unwavering devotion to Jesus Christ. He was fully devoted to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And not only that, Paul was fully convinced with all his heart and mind that Jesus is the one true King of kings and Lord of lords, Savior of all mankind. He knew this with all his heart. He knew that Jesus was the living, risen from the dead Son of God who humbled himself and allowed himself to be born in human form, to be tempted as we are in every way, and yet live in sin-free fellowship with the Lord. He knew that Jesus offered up his own life as a sacrifice for our sins so that we wouldn't have to suffer the consequences of our sins ourselves. He, he already paid the price for us. He offered this salvation for all of mankind. Jesus demonstrated his love for us, for sinful people, so that we could receive God's grace and gain for forgiveness for all of our sins rather than the eternal punishment that we deserve. Paul knew these things to be true with all his heart and mind. He knew that Jesus is the one and only true Savior, full of grace and love, the only true way to know God and to live in fellowship with him the only true way to enjoy the fullness of knowing God and receiving his blessings and his ongoing presence. Paul knew that there is only one true God, eternally existent as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he took seriously the first of God's Ten Commandments. As we read in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, where God spoke to the Israelites and he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Paul took that seriously. And he allowed no other God, no other influence to take preeminence in his life over his devotion to the Lord. Because Paul knew these things to be true, he devoted his life to following and serving Jesus. He devoted himself to living according to the truth he knew, which is just being honest and living with integrity, isn't it? If you know something to be true, are you going to live in opposition to that truth? It's hard to live with yourself if you know that's to be true and yet you do something different. And yet, that's, that's where sin lies, isn't it? Paul was willing to set aside his own desire and his own personal comforts to live according to the truth. He knew that Jesus died, or lived and died and rose again out of love and an offer of salvation to all of mankind for everyone who would believe in him. 
Paul also knew that knowledge like this has consequences. Knowing something to be true doesn't just mean it's true for you. It means it's true for everybody. It is true that the earth revolves around the sun. We have physical proof of this. And that truth has an effect on everything and everyone on this planet. It is true that if I take my car keys and I drop them, they're going to hit the floor. And that's a truth that's true for everything in existence, isn't it? The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same kind of truth. It's true for everything and everyone and every place and every time. Paul knew personally that this is a fundamental truth that affects everything. So he knew Jesus personally, and that gave him meaning for his life. It gave, gave him a new identity as a child of God, somebody loved and forgiven by, by the creator of all life. Knowing Jesus gave Paul a, a transcendent purpose, a reason for living and doing something important beyond just getting by in life and gaining um, things for his own personal agenda. Uh, enjoyment. He knew that because Jesus gave his life for him, there was greater meaning to Paul's life, a purpose to make a difference in this world for Christ, to be pleasing to the Lord. Knowing Jesus gave Paul perseverance to endure all those things that we talked about, all those things that were done to him by people who rejected Jesus didn't matter as much to Jesus as continuing to trust in Jesus. Trust in his enduring love and in his provision. And so he could carry on with strength and joy in spite of anything anyone did to him. And Jesus knew, or knowing Jesus taught Paul that God would provide for all his needs and he need not, need not worry about his life. And because he knew all these things to be true, Paul knew that this knowledge would be the best thing for every person on the planet to know as well. And so when it came to the church in Corinth and what they were listening to and these, these false messages and these things that, that took them away from the true gospel of Christ, it mattered not for Paul's sake, not for his own legacy or anything like that, but it mattered for their sake that they understood what was true about Jesus and that they devoted themselves to to who Jesus really was and what he actually did. Not just to what sounded good or felt good, not what was convenient to them or allowed them to have a peaceful and happy life. The truth about Jesus matters for their personal fulfillment and well-being. And that was why Paul was so determined for them to know and live by what is true about Jesus. He couldn't let it go because they would be following a lie. And they would be damaging their own lives. He couldn't be okay with a different interpretation or understanding of Jesus. And the same is true for us today, isn't it? Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday and as he is today. Jesus is worthy of our unwavering devotion to him, to what we know to be true about him. There will always be all kinds of influences operating in our lives, tempting us away from that unwavering devotion on Jesus. 
Temptations for what feels pleasing in a moment. Temptations for what seems to provide true satisfaction in life. Temptations to just go along with the rest of the world and not make waves. Temptations to avoid listening to God's word because it just seems easier. There'll be temptations in this world as well to judge the world for their lack of devotion rather than loving them as Jesus did. There's temptations to believe that Jesus isn't enough for us, that he doesn't care, that he's somehow out to cause us harm. And there are temptations to believe that Jesus is not truly God, that there is no God, or that believing in him has no real consequences in our life, that we could just go on living however we want and it doesn't matter. Well, the truth is, it does matter. It does make a difference. We know this to be true. And there's all kinds of ideas like this that tempt us into believing that what we read in God's word doesn't really matter. And that being a church that remains steadfastly, de steadfastly devoted to what has been revealed to us, it doesn't really matter either. That it's okay to neglect the fellowship of the church and to turn it into whatever we want it to be. There's all kinds of temptations that are going to try to lead us down that road. There will always be other places to be, other people to listen to, other activities demanding our devotion for our hearts and our minds other ways to try to seek our identity and our purpose and our provision, but all of those are rooted in seeking fulfillment from things that fall short of what God can provide. All of those things will lead us into a, a sinful way of living, a way that misunderstands who God is and what he can and will do and sends us on an ever- uh, a never-ending trek to find fulfillment in things that will always fall short. That's the root of what sin is, seeking fulfillment from other places, from false gods. And we have to ask ourselves, are they really worthy of that much attention from us? Are they really fulfilling us? And the answer that countless people have found when they assess their lives is no. Nothing fulfills the way that Jesus does. Jesus is worthy of all of our devotion. In Philippians, another letter that Paul wrote, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, he writes, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that, the name at, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the truth that Paul knew about Jesus, that he is above every other authority in this world. And that one day, a time is coming when God will return, Jesus will return and, and bring God's judgment into the world. And we will all stand before him at some point in our lives to be judged for the way we've lived, for what we've believed, and to God's glory, if you have come to know Jesus, you can say that Jesus has paid for my sins. And you can know that you will have eternal life. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He's saying there that all satisfaction for life can come through him, no matter what we're experiencing, no matter what losses we've had, no matter what hurts we've had, no matter what has been done to us, we can find satisfaction and fulfillment and life in him and through him because he is the source of all the nourishment that we need. He satisfies our souls. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. He is the way and the truth and the life. This is the truth that we know. In Matthew 7, he said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. This is one of the things I love so much about Jesus as well, is that he is willing to take us as we are, willing to take our questions, willing to let us ask, willing to let us seek and doubt, and says, just come to me, and I will give you the answers you're seeking. He will fulfill us. So in this world that offers so many other objects of devotion and sources of fulfillment and comfort, let us who know Jesus hold to him with an unwavering devotion, asking him for all things, trusting him for all things, seeking him, and knowing we will find all we need in him. May we continue to go to him and to stand on the truth that we know in this ever-changing world, in a world full of all kinds of things we could turn to. May we be known as those who trust fully in Jesus. And through our devotion, may many, many other people around us come to see the love and the grace, the fulfillment that comes from standing on the truth of who Jesus is. May God bless us with the ability to be unwavering in our devotion to him. Let's pray and give thanks to God for who he is and for the knowledge that he's given us. And then again, we encourage you and invite you all to stay and enjoy in fellowship afterward. Let's pray.